Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the pod that shares the stories of those affected by suicide. Lost a loved one? Attempted it yourself? Did you know that when you share a burden, the load is lightened? Come listen in with your host, Elaine Lindsay. Suicide Zen Forgiveness, the podcast, is for education only. Some of the subject matter could be triggering for those that are newly grieving or in a poor state of mental health. Please call your local suicide hotline or mental health office if you need immediate help. Hello there. It's good to be back. I'm Elaine Lindsay. As this is Suicides and Forgiveness. And today I have a guest that, quite frankly, I had not met. So this will be a very interesting story for all of us. I'm going to give you a little bit of information. This is our guest today, Richard Brockman, MD. He's a clinical professor. He's uh, at Columbia University. He has Vagalos College of Physicians and Surgeons and visiting professor at the University of Namibia School of Medicine. He's written over 40 papers published in peer-reviewed journals, primarily focused on neuroscience and clinical psychiatry. His book, A Map of the Mind Towards the Science of Psychotherapy, was published by International Universities Press to critical acclaim. Why we're here today has to do with his book, Life After Death, Surviving Suicide. It was published in August this year by Arcade Press, Simon & Schuster, and that has also received critical acclaim. His teaching has been honored by the Victor J. Teichner Visiting Scholar Award from the American Academy of Psychodynamic Psychiatry and Psychoanalysis, as well as the Nancy C. A. Rosk, MD, Certificate of Recognition for Excellence in Medical Student Education from the American Psychiatric Association. He's lectured widely in the United States and abroad. If that's not enough, he is also a playwright whose work has been produced in New York, Los Angeles, London, and numerous other cities. He has articles published in the Atlantic Monthly, the Los Angeles Times Magazine, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and I'm sure by now you're as excited as I am to get to meet Richard. Hi. Hi. Good to be here. It's wonderful to have you here, absolutely. I did read your bio, but I left most of your story for you to share with us rather than explain it ahead of time. I appreciate when I get stories firsthand along with our audience. So I'm going to let you go ahead and start wherever you think is suitable, but we, we do know for our means, this podcast has to do with suicide, ideation, and mental health. So on that note, please, Richard, go ahead. Okay. You're giving me a very big task and a very wide field. And, um, yeah. Both terrifying as well as appreciated. So Sorry. thank you. Um, I, I, I guess the place to start 
in terms of this journey is that when I was seven years, two months, and two days old, and I abbreviate that with seven plus two. When, so when I was seven plus two, my mother committed suicide. And it had an extraordinarily disorganizing and well, well, catastrophic effect on, on my family, uh, my sisters, my father, and certainly on me. I was the youngest. Yeah. And I think much of my identity was crushed. Not much of it, all of it. And I really had to pick up the pieces, either leave the pieces as they were, which would have been a disaster, or pick them up and figure out a new identity and start all over again. And that's part of the reason the book, Survive, uh, Life After Death, Surviving Suicide, is really about two things. One, it's about the narrative of my early life, my mother's suicide, and then my, pick, my sort of continuing on having to re-establish my identity and my story. That's the armature of the narrative. On that, I think the book also has to do with the biology of story and why, and, and I'm, I go out on a limb here, but I my view, and I'm somewhat perhaps alone on this, but I think mammals, all mammals think and remember in the structure of story. Now, obviously, dogs, cats, horses, and mice, or whatever, any mammal you pick, is not going to say, yesterday I had this for lunch, or tomorrow I'm going to the wherever. They don't use language, and they don't think symbolically, which is something that Homo sapiens alone is able to do, and to a certain degree, certain primates, but mostly just us. Our narrative can be symbolic. We can put it in a story structure, but the biology of all mammals can be put in the structure, the biological structure of story. So I'm telling the, the narrative of story, my mother's suicide and all that, and the biology of story, which is, has to do with neuroscience. I just want to say one thing there, because I think I'm on board with you, because I know after just a few years, dogs, cats, if you have certain traditions that you go through that affect the animals, such as Christmas or Hanukkah or whatever, the animals do remember. There are memories for them of certain things that we do when it involves them. You know, you don't have to have an animal too long to understand. They may not realize it's their birthday, but they know that same time every year, a big fuss is made over them for whatever reason. And the same with certain holidays. It's the same kind of thing. So I think I'm quite on board there. Not as eloquently put as you did, but... I, yes, I think animals do, mammals, not necessarily animals, but mammals certainly put past, present, and future together up to a point. Yeah. And again, if you think about 
how does any mammal understand what what I'm going to do next and think about it? That, that's a story structure. It might not be I'm going to grandmother's house through the woods kind of story structure, but it's a story structure. And we homo sapiens have a more elegant way, if you will, a more symbolic capacity to tell a story. But the basic story structure is there. And I think that structure can be a, can, can fall apart just as a narrative can fall apart. The biology can be attacked, if you will, and become much less efficient and almost not entirely useless, but it's the efficiency of a story, of a biological story, can be significantly injured by trauma. And I think suicide of a close family, of a, of a, a close one, whether it's family or not, but where love is involved, where closeness is involved, or even just witnessing the impact of it can disrupt narrative, the biological narrative, as well as certainly, obviously, the psychological narrative. So the book does weave back and forth those two elements of story, a narrative and a, bio and a biology. And it... It has always fascinated me how humans react so differently, yet there are traits that are the same, but we all handle trauma, we handle the after effects thereof very differently. Some of us look for ways to become whole again, and some of us tend to freeze and hide, and some of us just go on day to day. Is that a, a brain function thing? Does that have to do with the neurons? Or is there something else that dictates how you end up reacting? You have to understand that I did study psychiatry. I'd still, I still, I, I am a psychiatrist. I was, for a brief time in my life, a psychoanalyst. I now consider myself 98% a neuroscientist, or at least someone who thinks that way. Whenever you ask me, when someone does something, is it connected to the brain? <laughs> I'm yeah. just yes. Yeah, yeah. I didn't word that well, because that's not really what I meant. <laughs> or, or how someone reacts to trauma. Yeah how quickly they recover or how devastated they yes. might be. Is there something, is that a brain function? Again, my answer is yes. I can, one can put it in psychological terms, but when I can bedrock it on biological terms, I feel much more comfortable saying, this is what was disrupted. This is what's not operating as opposed to someone had a good experience with a third grade teacher, which is critical. But right. it's like, what is that biologically, that good third grade teacher experience doing biologically? I'm always, at least in my thinking or my writing, trying to reduce it, if you will, to, it's, to the neuron. 
and to the synapses. I just find that in a funny way, safer and more comforting. Uh -huh. I think part of my life has been, I've found safety and comfort oddly from people, but I've also found it from science um, in terms of understanding things and asking questions and getting answers. Because if one of the huge questions that always comes up with those who are, it's not the ripple, it's in the tsunami zone of tsunami. Yeah. It's, it's not a ripple effect, it's a tsunami effect. Um, is why did she do this? Why did he do this? Why didn't she come to me? Why didn't he do that? And part of the, the tsunami of suicide of, 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 and being close to it is that you never really get a very good answer. If someone has Lou Gehrig's disease or someone has terminal cancer, yeah. then okay, you can satisfy that's it and you can understand it and it makes sense and there was so much suffering and there was really no way out of this box other than to take control of it um, with death. That makes sense. Everything else, every other aspect of it, it just doesn't make sense. So the answer, you never get an answer. And I think most of my life in this book was devoted to trying to get an answer from my mother as to why when I was seven plus two, why would you do this to me? And as a boy, it's, it's me. Yeah. It's yeah. personalized. You didn't do it to your husband. You didn't do it to your daughters. You, you didn't do it to your friends. You did it to me. And it's, and it's so it, the question itself is flawed. And it's so flawed that it doesn't have an answer. It's, but I spent, I don't know how many decades trying to find it. And I, I finally came to the realization a fairly long time ago, but still it wasn't, it, I, was, I was no longer a kid when it came to me that there is no answer. And I have to accept that. And, and, and to a certain degree, neuroscience can provide an answer to it, but it's not the answer that I thought I was looking for. Yeah. And I, I ask as someone who really would like to know, because I lost a very dear friend when, when I was 16. I lost my aunt, my father's sister, when I was seven. We, the jury's still out on what exactly the causes were. We have our thoughts now. But at 16, I was one that it disjointed, disorganized, disabused anything and everything that was me. And it became the why. The why became my raison d'etre. I haunted the cemetery because yeah. I just, I needed to know. And I think something that's interesting and, and you can probably speak to is my friend was Jewish and I grew up Catholic. So 
at the time, I had been to a number of funerals. And for us, I'm also Scottish-Irish, so funerals are big, long, involved, over-the-top events. And having to be buried before sundown left us, who were left behind, totally at a loss for any kind of closure. It, it was like falling off a precipice and never hitting bottom. I think very often one of the um, extraordinary twists that suicide does to those who are left behind, part of it's asking why are you dead? But the other part of it is almost as painful as why am I alive? And it is such a crushing twist where you feel that the injustice is partly she committed suicide. That's part of the injustice. But the other part of the injustice, which gets crazy, especially if you're 16, is why am I alive? I should be dead too. And that, it, it's haunting. And it's very real and it's very human in a, both totally understandable as well as totally twisted way. And so answers get, it's finding an answer in a tornado. It's a pretty tough place to get answers. Everything's spinning. Yeah. And Uh, as a child, like there is a world of difference between your age, your loss at your age and loss at my age at 16. That young boy was, first of all, it was your mom. So there's no, I'm not comparing that at all. But being that young, going forward, how how did you manage to pick yourself up then and go to school and, and do the daily things a child does? Let me say two things. One, I think 16, I'll just go back and then I'll come back. Yeah. But 16, adolescence, I have always felt, looking back on mine, is an illness which all of us who get to the age of 20 have to survive. Or or those of us lucky enough to get to 20 have survived. That it's extraordinarily confusing and shifting series of just period of time for all of us that that so much of identity is being reworked and retooled and and discovered and lost and searched for and and it it has such huge emotional significance without the full cognitive control over all those emotions so it's a it's a very challenging time and to have, I'm assuming this is a close friend of yours who committed suicide, to have a close friend commit suicide where there is such a blending or bleed, if you will, between boundaries as to my friend and me and she she is or a girl, it was a girl. These are her, this is me. And there's a fluidity. It's, 
it's an emotional fluidity that has to do with how uncontrolled if biologically loose emotions are and they're not really all that well controlled by the prefrontal cortex that thinks about things and puts them into a logic for a, a girlfriend of a 16 year old to commit suicide it's it's almost impossible not to feel i did something wrong or i could have done something different or how could she do this or why didn't she what did i fail how did i fail and it becomes this huge psychical maelstrom and biological maelstrom that just adds to the, the, the maelstrom of adolescence that's already there. 16 is a very challenging period of, one, of anyone's life. And then to have a friend commit suicide just adds to the, the chaos, yeah. the, the deep, personal chaos. And as a seven-year-old, it's a different kind of chaos because it, I didn't feel so much. I, I think the questions of an adolescent are, what did I do wrong? Why didn't I, why didn't I call her when she called me or whatever it is, that, that the sense of responsibility. Yeah. For a child, for me as a seven plus two, it, 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 I think a child is even more selfish than an adolescent in terms of how could you do this to me? And, and I didn't really ask myself, what could I have done to save you? Or what should I have done differently? It was, how could you do this to me? And what does this mean about how you felt about me? And so it, it, it was much more... <laughs> selfish and narcissistic than I think an adolescent where it feels responsible and as having failed. I didn't feel I failed. Okay. I, I felt just bereft and lost and crushed, but I didn't feel that there was something I should have done or, or that I failed in some way. And I think that's an, that's something I think has to do with what, what a, seven-year-old feels about him or herself as opposed to what a 16-year-old feels about him or herself. Well, thank you so much for, for putting that into perspective because when I was reading your book, that was a predominant question for me was, why did I fall apart so badly? He was a child. But you've now put it into perspective because that's what I didn't see was what could I have done to not have this happen? Uh, how did I fail her? And, and that was a very big part of it for me. So I, I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was in the book that, that I thought I felt different. Like as a child, this was different, but that, that's definitely. Also, I, I, again, I just want to stress that it's the age, it's the adolescence that turns that question. The adolescent feels in certain ways that he or she can is can do anything, can can negotiate anything, even though she or he doesn't really know who I am. I still feel a certain sense of power about my budding world and self, and what I should have done something since I am so 
I've all these skills and stuff that are maturing. I should have been able to do something. And that's the, the age forces that question of what should I have done or what could I have done? The age being you're 16. Yeah. And I think it becomes many adolescents when a friend, a schoolmate does that. And that's usually what we're talking about. The, the adolescent feels that they have failed Joey or Susan, whoever, in, in some way. And goes, feels guilty. Yeah. And again, I, I didn't go through guilt as a seven-year-old. I, I went through different things. And I think it's important to, the age that suicide hits, and I'm talking about obviously someone else that you're close to, your age has a tremendous factor and, and what where your brain, is, the maturity of your brain or immaturity of your brain has a tremendous say, if you will, in what your reaction is going to be. And well, it was fascinating to me because I've been on the other end of all of that. And in reading the book, it was different for the boys that we hung around with. And after the fact, years later, a couple of the guys, when we talked about losing Andrea, they felt... Guilty, but there was more of an anger that, well, how could she do that? I don't think I got to anger for, I don't know, a decade or so. I was so stuck in feeling guilty, but in talking to others. And is there a difference in gender? Is there a difference in, like, that much of a difference that we would see it? differently? I think when, a, a, let's call, I will call her a soulmate or someone that you really felt appear, not yes. appear, you identify with Andrea. She, there's a 16 year old girl, 16 year old boys, they, there's a tremendous amount of identification one with the other. And so the so the sense of what could I have done to, to save her is, I think, is different because it, you, in, in a sense, you are Andrea. For a, a boy, I think it, it's somewhat different. There's a different relationship. There's a different kind of bond. I don't think girls and boys identify cross gender with each other. There might be, I mean, obviously there's, there's a sexuality, and, but I'm not, I don't want to get into yeah. sort of that world about it, but it's just, just biologically yeah. you feel different from, I feel different from a girl, feels different from me. And you feel identified with Andrea more than the boys would. Yeah. And so that identification cha again changes why didn't you come to me? I would have gotten you through this. I would have somehow saved you. 
Yeah. I think a, a boy's reaction would be different, I, I think. Yeah. Um, because of identification. Yeah, thank you for that, because that's been a big question. In terms of, of all that you've studied and what you've come across in taking apart the narrative as opposed to the biologic, do you have suggestions or are there things people can do should they come up against this to handle it for themselves maybe better than I did? Uh, I don't have a an overall suggestion of what one should do. I think one of the some of the experiments have been done and they're quite critical and they really apply to trauma. And it's like a fire for a fireman is not particularly traumatic. It's okay, there's a fire, I'm gonna do this alarm and put on these boots and do this and do that. And I'm, I, this is what I'm gonna do. So it, it's, it can be very traumatic for someone who's not a fireman or this, the sight of blood for someone who's a surgeon as opposed to someone who's not a surgeon. It's a whole different world. And it's not so much habituation, it's whether or not you feel in control. Trauma by definition is not the severity of the, of the gunshot blast or the, or the size of the earthquake or the, you name it, whatever it is. It's whether you feel in control. If you feel in control, it can be a hugely terrifying event to, to most. But if you feel in control, it's, it's not trauma. And the event can be relatively minor. But if you feel I am not in control of this, it's in control of me, and it's a threat, that's trauma. And that sets off a whole different set of biology or neurobiology that gets set off as, as to pose whether I'm in control or feel in control. Again, whether you are or not is irrelevant. You can be totally out of control. There can be a dam burst and you feel that's okay. I, I'm a good swimmer, but it's, you're not, if that, once that water comes, you're not, you don't, it doesn't you're matter. Yeah. But if you yeah. feel in control, it's not traumatic. If you feel out of control by the situation, then the biology is of red alert biology. Yeah. yeah. How to survive a trauma, a traumatic situation, therefore gets back to whether or not the situation is such that you feel in control. Yeah. It's really very hard to define as a general rule, this yeah. is how you should deal with trauma. But the, the bedrock of it is, do I emotionally feel in control or not? Yeah. And there are consequences, in, biological consequences, not necessarily good or bad. Sometimes yeah. you're not in control and it's good to understand that so that you're, the quickest responses, which is the 
the biological threat responses take over. Right. So you don't start thinking, this tiger is over there. Should I go this way or that way? It's like you just do, so, do something because otherwise yeah. the tiger will take you. And it, yeah. that's there are certain situations where you're out of control and there's good reason why you're out of control. And, and indeed, those instinctive responses are the ones that might save you but they also the ones that potentially have are, can lead to the most damage in terms of a long-term sequelae. Right. Um. I have a, it's on topic, but maybe a slightly different question. This happened to you as a child. Do you think, or it could be valuable if we brought suicide and information, more information about trauma, including suicide and mental health, to children younger so that they may have a few of the tools to be able to process when something traumatic happens. Well, <laughs> I think it depends on how old we're talking about. I think talking to children, let's say, if I, if someone had talked to me as a seven-year-old about suicide, I don't think I would have understood what they were talking about. Okay. And so I would have sat there and looked outside and was wondering, what, is it going to snow or not, or something yeah. like that, okay. or what was for lunch. I think The, the, the critical information for a, a child or for, or for any of us in certain respects is having, whether they're role models or just people in your life who you knew that if I was overwhelmed by something, whatever it was, mm. if I had a situation where I didn't know what to do, there's someone who I could go to, whether it's my father, my mother, my sister, a teacher, the next door neighbor. And if I thought it was Andrea and, and then she kills herself, what is that? That becomes a, yeah. incredibly problematic. And that, that sort of shakes the foundation. But to have someone, and perhaps be good to have more than one, just in case something happens to that one, like Andrea or to my mother, or Mom. that it's not, I have one source of safety. Yeah. And it is a recreation of safety, even if it means having that person hold you or having a teacher who just seemed to understand everything. And not that she could explain anything, but just her presence was a significant source of safety. And I think having that in life for especially for, for any, at any point in life, but, and I think that's one thing I had as, as a boy was I had people who I knew I could go to when I didn't know what to do so that an out of control situation where I felt this traumatic event, 
I was totally out of control. And obviously my mother's suicide, I was totally out of control. But there were people I could go to, not that could answer me. Not, could, not They can't answer why, they can't answer what do you do now. They, all they could do is say, come here, let me hold you. Or come here and sit down and we'll just sit together. And that, it, in the immediate moment, for an immediate moment is a day, a week, a month. It's a, yeah. a long period of time. That becomes um, a, a source of, of, of narrative safety, but it becomes a source of biologic safety. Okay. And, and that then lets me or you or whomever start thinking again, because in the acute situation, you're really not thinking. No. Because again, you don't want to think if there's a tiger here, I should go to the left or the right. You just, you don't want to think about that. You just have to do something. Just, and if it's right, if it's wrong, better than doing nothing. But yeah. I, and you can't think your way through an overwhelming crisis. You can't, that's by definition. If there's an earthquake, you just, Hope for the best and make an action and hope for the best. Yeah. Don't try to outthink an earthquake. Or maybe there are certain things I guess you should know about earthquakes, but yeah, yeah. No, they, that's incredibly important. And, and I'm sorry. I was, I was in an earthquake in Los Angeles. I was in Los Angeles and there was an earthquake. And I it wasn't a big one, but the and every and I was online checking out of a hotel. And everybody else scattered. And I said, oh, okay. And I just moved to the head of the line. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. Everyone went, went into the door frames, which is what you're supposed to do. But I, right. I just went to the head of the line. So there is information in the crisis. That, and I suppose, it, and if it's something you're not used to, there was an earthquake here in 1988. And it it's the first earthquake I knew anything about. I was in a store. I was buying uh, twinkle lights for a store display. And I thought I would knock over the display because everything came down around me. And then when I realized what was happening, when the, the shelving started falling on people and it was getting really out of control, I turned around and gave all my money away. Huh. I walked out of the store without what I'd gone for. I emptied my wallet, my pockets, and just gave it to the lady with the bells, Salvation Army. Salvation Because yes. I figured, what's the point? It's the end of the world. Here you go. <laughs> Good. But again, just see, that puts you back in control. And it's, it, you can, it doesn't have to be real. It doesn't have to, if, if the world was about to break open underneath you, the, whether you'd given this woman money or not is really, wasn't going to help yeah. you one way or the other. I, I figured I had no use for it. It made you feel in control of something. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I'm going to make, make this act because the world is the end of the world. But just before it ends, I'm going to make this gift. Yeah. And you're in control. You're biologically in your brain. Ah. You're in control. As opposed to I'm the victim of whether this ground gives way or not. Yeah. Um, I, I got back to the store and my husband said he was very grateful that I had, I was not on my way to do the bank deposit. <laughs> yes, that yeah. too. Yeah. One thing, when you're talking about that safety and having the safety around you, 
do you think it's do you think children are more resilient than adults? It's again it double pronged because obviously adults most adults would know in an earthquake you can give your money away or you can go to the head of line yeah. <laughs> check out <laughs> or you could go into a door frame and and that's a, supposedly that's a good place to well, yeah. better place to be than in the middle of the of the building yeah it's so an adult would tend to have more obviously has been on earth has been alive longer has more information so there's more thinking that you can do in terms of okay this is a bad situation what's what should i do a child doesn't have that usually because of that is much more ready access to a direct emotional response okay. so the child's going to react in a much more just straight out emotional way because yeah. they don't biologically and neurologically they don't have as many neuro neurons that are myelinated in the cortex so that they can't come up with I should right. keep this away because I'm going to die or I'm going to go into a door frame because that's a good place. I'm just going to either marvel at the fact that everything is falling off the shelves yeah. or get very scared by it. And, and yeah. it's, it's, I, yeah. so it, there is a certain sense of omniscience that sometimes children have, but not obviously two or three year old. Well, yeah. even little kids it's a certain sense of omniscience that children have okay. and omnipotence yeah you tend to lose as adulthood you start saying yeah. i guess mortality is real yeah my knees hurt and one day other things will also start to hurt and it's that will yeah. and that time applies to me too Adolescents, children, adolescents—that doesn't—it's not really there. Okay. As a certain form of resilience, of this isn't going to hurt me. I'm a, there's that aspect, but the other and the adult part is I know what to do in this situation, so I will tell you what to do, because we are mortal, and therefore it's important that you listen to me and come stand in the doorway. So I'm immortal, and I can just watch the roof falling in the multi-people. <laughs> Around me, yeah. Yeah, and I'll yeah. now not be injured or hurt. It's resilience is again. It has a biological determinants, and it, it has a lot to do with how near or far you are from some sense of safety, whether it's in your control. And bravery is also. There, there was a. a, a, a newsreel about this there was a fire in New Jersey and this woman the firemen were outside and it was like a, a the, the house was an inferno and the woman was screaming that her it was a, a child was still inside and the fireman said look you can't go in there right the woman ran in yeah I mean and she died uh -huh. but it was totally understandable that this something well maternal instincts were firing at her yeah so whether it was resilience or bravery or 
whatever you want to, it wasn't a wise thing to do, but she was going to go in after to find her child, even though the firemen were saying, you cannot go in this, it's an inferno. Yeah. It just to overruled any sense of reason. Yeah. This was not a moment when she was could be reasoned with. No. no. Uh, and it's understandable. So a lot of these, well, resilience at times can be determined by other factors that 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 aren't always right. But huh. I can't argue with her decision. No. In terms of your book and all the work you've done over the years, do you have a sense of having taken some value and been able to come to terms with what happened? I know you're not ever going to get the why, but is there a certain, I don't know, calm that comes with, or acceptance maybe is the word I'm looking for? Yes. And it took me <laughs> decades, many decades to come to terms with, and it wasn't entirely with what she did, it was the, the question that as a boy I was asking, how could you do this to me? Me. Which was totally an age appropriate, but ridiculous, unanswerable, yeah. the wrong question. But it came out of the, the mind and heart and broken heart of a seven, seven year old. Yeah. And the answer that I came up with, but that I discovered, and, and to a certain degree I knew it, but not entirely, was that she, this wasn't about me. <laughs> this has nothing to do with me. Um, and that's part of the error that people make, is either they feel I failed and I'm ashamed, or I'm, I'm angry, or, that some they person we personalize it, and where we are in our lives and who the person is to us determines how we personalize it, and then frame a question where I'm in in it. And the, the truth is, I'm not part. Of, I wasn't part of the, that equation. I again, someone has cancer. They're, they're, they they can't. They've just lost the family fortune. They've just done some unspeakable act of yeah. driving and stupidity. There are all kinds of situations where someone just says, I am okay. bad, I shouldn't live, I'm going to kill myself. And you can, on the outside, understand it, especially with terminal illness and pain, yeah. that suffering, that we can understand. But there are other situations like Andrea or my or Ruth, my mother, where we personalize it. And it's either what should I have done to stop this or how could you have done this to me? And again, the truth is in most of these instances that it had nothing to do with you or me. 
and taking ourselves out of that equation is not always easy because it means I thought I was the world to you and I thought I was everything. And it's, yeah, you were, but something else overruled. Yeah. And in my mother's case, it was bipolar depression, postpartum depression, and then bipolar depression. That it's a vicious illness. Yeah. And it, so the why, if there's a why, it's because my accepting the fact that I wasn't part of the equation, that it was bipolar depression. It was postpartum depression and bipolar depression, which are the suicide rate, the, the highest, the highest postpartum, postpartum mothers, the most likely cause of death is suicide. Suicide. It's yeah. just statistics. It's not because they hate their kids or they don't love their no. husband. It's, it's because of postpartum depression. Yeah. And bipo- untreated bipolar depression has a 15% mortality. That's one in eight. That's huge. Yeah, that's huge. And so it's, these, are, these aren't, why did you do this to me? It's something was done to you that, that was genetics and epigenetics. And I had nothing to do with it. And I couldn't have stopped it. I couldn't have stopped the, the, what that illness was doing to you. And therefore, and you couldn't have, I don't know what Andrea, but I very much believe that you could not have stepped between whatever happened to Andrea and her suicide. The other adolescence is again, it's its own illness. Yeah. Um, yeah. But so I think eventually, and it, it took a lot of wonderful, loving people were, and I was lucky enough that I had those people in my life with yeah. the love, but also the skill to to guide me to a place where I could reframe the question and reformulate it so that I could answer it and I could accept it that yeah. it wasn't me. Um, really taking you out of the equation. Yeah. And I could go back to loving her. I never stopped, but it was always like, if do you love me? How could you do you love me? And and, and like that, yeah, she did. <laughs> yeah, I love her. It had nothing to do with any of that. And just that was such a freedom. And again, it was decades before I could get there. And I went, the book goes through it for me at any rate. Yeah. The, the trials and tribulations, what I had to put myself through, what I had to put people who loved me through what I had to put in my own mind, my mother through to to get her to explain all these things. And it it was reformulating the question so I could reformulate the story so I could tell a different story and get to a different story. And that's eventually what happened, but it's it's many, many decades. Yeah, I can relate to that. Now that the book is out, what was your hope, your plan, if you will, or what seed did you want to plant with the book? First of all, this was this is a both a, a, a memoir as well as a study of neuroscience of the neuroscience around. This memoir, the memoir, big story. 
And since it was a memoir and since it's my story, I figured I know this story. I lived it. I was there. I should just sit down and write it and that'll be that. And what happened was that it, it was full of surprises for me. It was like, oh my God, I didn't know that. And it wasn't that there were, th that I remember, it wasn't like recovered memory. It wasn't like I remembered things that I didn't know. It was that my perspective on these things was so wrong. And in, re in writing the book and telling the story, it was like, oh my God, if you just shift five degrees this way, it's a different story. And that aspect of writing the book was such a surprise and painful, joyous, exciting, collegiatic. It was like all that sort of stuff that you don't expect. You just expect, I'm just going to write my life story. And, and then it, it was, but it wasn't. It was like, wow, I didn't really know this about myself or about the people that were in my life and are in my life. And learning it was learning something new. And that aspect of writing the book, I didn't, and including learning who my mother was. Right. I knew, but I didn't know. And all of that was finally a tremendous liberation for me. But it was also a tremendous liberation for my mother as yeah. I, let, I let her die finally after, uh, yeah. I don't know how many years I quote unquote kept her alive. I didn't keep her alive, but I kept yeah. her alive. And it was like, she wasn't alive. <laughs> after December 15th, she was not, wasn't alive. And it's, I, that's, that was, it was a truth that I knew, but I, didn't know and the truth is it's like truth is complicated it is. <laughs> it's very two plus two is equal to four okay that's true but it, it's only true because we define it two, we said it we said two plus two is equal to four and then we say is two plus two equal to four and you say yes that it's true done deal yeah everything else is it's a little bit of this a little it's it yeah. can shift and I got to a truth in writing the book that that I could accept as as a conclusion. Ah, uh, okay. After many decades. Yeah. I don't know if this is right or wrong, but in a way you were able to put the seven-year-old to rest as well so that yes. you, the man, could go on with your life? Totally. I, there's, I, I'm not going to, there's a plot point that I'm not going to. No, read. don't. Your listeners who might get the book, I'm not going to say exactly, but no. yes. Yes. Letting that seven-year-old, two-month, two-day-old boy Letting him die was a critical point of my coming back to life.
And that wasn't easy. Oh my God, no, no. I, he was a good kid. Yes, from what I read, he was a good kid. <laughs> Very good kid. I, I do urge our audience to get the book and the links to the book will be on the page along with the transcript and all other information to do with uh, Dr. Richard Brockman. I know that there's a lot of valuable things we talked about today and I cannot thank you enough. I knew you were going to be a really good guest because I did have access to the book before I met you, but you've answered some questions I didn't even realize that I had until we spoke, which I really thank you for that. Thank you so much for being my guest. Uh, thank you for our audience as well. And I look forward to seeing whatever else you write. And I'd like to see some of your plays, speaking about which. <laughs> if there are any producers in the audience, just... There you go. <laughs> <on the mark. laughs> well, thank you very much. This is, I, I, whenever I am surprised, and whenever I learn something and you've brought out surprises and helped me to learn things, it's always very exciting. I'm grateful, very grateful. Thank you. As am I. Thank you so much. I'm Elaine Lindsay, and as is usual, this is the time for me to say goodbye. Thank you so much for spending time with us. And most of all, make the very best of your today every day. And we'll see you next time. Bye, Richard. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe on your favorite service. Suicide Zen Forgiveness was brought to you by Truel Social Media, the digital integration specialists. Let them get you on page one in the search results. And also by Canada's keynote humorist, Judy Croon, the motivational speaker, comedian, author, and stand-up coach at Second City. On the stage, Judy draws from her wealth of performance experience, wit, and insight to entertain, inform, and inspire in her dynamic keynotes and half-day workshops.